What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. Today we're celebrating the power of poetry. Poetry is the perfect balm for the challenges of life, as William Seacott has found. And in this episode, he brings to life some of the experiences that inspired his book, The Poetry Pharmacy, Tried and True Prescriptions for the Heart, Mind and Soul. This is a really amazing event. Along with William Seacott, we had the author Jeanette Winterson and then three actors, Helena Bonham Carter, Sue Perkins, Jason Isaacs and Tom Burke. And Helena and Sue were a little bit anarchic and it was all huge fun, very lively, utterly memorable. I really enjoyed it. This event originally took place on the 2nd of March 2018 in London. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. And I hope that even if you don't recognise the face, you do know the voice. (laughs) Now, given that I'm normally breathing doom and gloom in your ear at some ungodly hour of the morning, it is an absolute delight to be here. And, And perhaps it speaks to what this whole evening is about, which is finding an antidote to some of the stresses and strains of life or indeed some of the stuff you hear me saying early in the morning. Now listen, we've got these fabulous voices we're going to hear from shortly, but let's kick things off. We're talking about poems themselves generally, because obviously, William, they are such an important part of your life. Was there a moment, was there a light bulb moment for you when you thought, whoa, this is what a poem can do? There are a number of light bulb moments. I think the one that stuck most in my mind was in my mid-twenties. I was trying to cross the Cromwell Road and the lights changed to red and the man standing next to me walked into the road and one of the cars jumped the lights. And the next thing I knew, there was a horrible noise and he flew through the air and hit the pavement. And in the flurry of the crowd around him was somebody who knew about first aid and was starting to give him the breath of life and he asked for my help and in what seemed milliseconds, There were police, there was an ambulance, this man's heart had stopped and it came back to life. And then everyone had gone. I'd given my statement, I was standing in exactly the same spot, but I had blood on my hands. And I had learnt a poem by Philip Larkin called Ambulances, 
which is all about when the ambulance comes past you in the street where you live and what it means and what it makes you think. Poor soul, you whisper at your own distress. And that poem helped me make sense of what at the time was an incredibly traumatic moment. I think a gin and tonic helped too, but the combination <laughs> just reminded me once again of how an important a companion lines of poetry and poems have been for me to help cope with the difficulties of my life. Okay. Jeanette Winterson, was there a poem for you that did it? Yes, when I was growing up in Accrington with my adoptive family, the Wintersons, uh, it was pretty fraught. We weren't allowed books um, because my mother didn't want me to have secular influences, but she liked murder mysteries, so she used to send me down to the public library. Um, one day she asked me to get a book called Murder in the Cathedral because she thought it was about monk, homicidal monks and she liked anything that was bad for the Pope. Anyway, when I got it out, I could see at once that it wasn't a murder mystery because it was too thin. And it said T.S. Eliot. I didn't know who he was. I was only 16. I thought maybe it was something to do with George Eliot because I didn't know anything about this stuff. Anyway, I opened it and I started to cry and the librarian shouted at me because in those days you weren't allowed to even sneeze in a library, let alone cry. So I went outside, sat on the steps of the Accrington Public Library and what I'd read was this. The line I opened it at was, this is one moment. Know that another will pierce you with a sudden painful joy. This is one moment. Know that another will pierce you with a sudden painful joy. And I realized that I'd found a new friend called T.S. Eliot. And William, this idea of the poetry pharmacy, in a way, I mean, you've both just illustrated it. It's something that you can turn to where, in this case, I mean, you stumbled across it almost by accident, completely, didn't you? Completely. Um, I was, I had, during the Olympics, I had made an anthology of inspiring poems with Faber and Faber. And as any writers here will know, once you've got a book, you're on the road to promote it. And I went to a series of literary festivals and a wonderful friend of mine called Jenny Dyson said, you're always sending your friends poems to cheer them up. I'm setting you up at the Port Elliot Literary Festival in Cornwall. And I'm, after you've given your talk, I'm putting you in a tent with two armchairs and a prescription pad that I've designed. And you're going to listen to people's problems and you can prescribe them a poem. And I thought this would be a, a kind of gimmick, really. And, and I did I was going to do 10 minutes with each person and they put a blackboard outside the tent and you could book your slot and six hours later with a very full bladder I was still there <laughs> and I've spent my adult life trying to get poetry out of poetry corner to some extent I feel maybe I've made the corner a tiny bit bigger but I realised this changed everything this suddenly connected people to poetry in a way in which poetry had often intimidated them and frightened them. I, I think everybody has a need and, and all kinds of people love the idea of a poem for when they're really in trouble. They just don't know where to look. Okay, but just before we get, get on to the poems, it does though put you in the rather sick and gloomy corner, doesn't it? Because if it is a medicine, we're all sick. We are all sick. No one goes oh. to the doctor unless they feel ill. You know, we now live in a world where we're able freely to discuss mental illness our psyches, our neuroses, our difficulties, in a way in which we've never been able to before. And thank God for that. It's foolish for anyone to feel that they can just simply cope with all the difficulties of life without engaging and expressing to other people. In the old days, you'd have a family member, a companion, a priest, a doctor or someone to talk to. 
increasingly we don't go in those routes. And the great thing about a poem, if you find the right poem for the right state of mind, you have a sense instantly of complicity, a sense of somebody else feels like I feel. And they may have felt that hundreds of years ago when they wrote it, and they're reaching out a hand to you. And that's what it's all about. You feel understood. And because you feel understood, it helps you evolve and move on. And it's better than a drink or a pill. Okay. Kick us off with our first poem, then. The first poem I've chosen is The Piece of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an American poet. This is a wonderful poem which I prescribe for anxiety and sleeplessness. Uh, nobody ever tells you when you become a parent that you're condemned to worry for the rest of your life. I think if they did tell you, you might think differently about it, but we all know how it feels, and the worst time is somewhere around four in the morning, liver time, I think it's called, where in the darkness, all of those worries and concerns just seem to magnify and get worse and worse and worse. And there's something about this wonderful poem, which even though I live in the middle of a city and I'm not able to do what Wendell Berry does, I just sort of mouth the words to myself and it helps me get back to my sleeping pattern. So, Jason. The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night of the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Jeanette, what's your first poem, assuming? I rather love this. It's Celia Celia by Adrian Mitchell. And I've chosen it because it's very short and you can learn poems easily. But if you're just starting out learning, then perhaps learn something which doesn't take a lot of concentration. I mean, all our actors here know how to learn huge amounts of lines easily. But once you've got something inside of you, it really belongs to you. And I understood this early on in life because, back to the old Winterson madness, she once burned all of my books, which was a terrible thing. And then I realized that anything that's outside of you can always be destroyed, taken away at any moment. And in a world where so many people now are refugees, we know what that might feel like, and it might happen to us. So if you had nothing, if you had to leave, if you had to take things away, what would you have inside you? that you could rely on and that you could depend on? And would you be able to recite things to yourself and others in that stressful time? And this is, a, this is a lovely, wonderful poem about the glory of beauty and the joy of the body and sex and just these simple, animal, elemental, everyday pleasures that make you feel better about being a carbon-based human in a silicon world. Helene, are you going to read it to us? Go on. Celia, Celia by Adrian Mitchell. When I am sad and weary, when I think all hope has gone, when I walk along High Hoban, I think of you with nothing on. 
Come on, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> yeah, do it again. <laughs> do it. How do I do it differently? Should I do it quicker? No. no. Any suggestions? What? Change the street. What? Change the street. But then it went right. <laughs> Euston Road. When I'm sad and weary, when I think all hope is... We could rap to it. When I'm sad and weary, when I think all hope is gone, when I walk along... I hope, and I, th I think of you with nothing on. <laughs> <laughs> William, just... <laughs> it works. Yeah. Well, I tell you what it shows. It shows a poem can be met read in many ways. So you're all going to learn that, OK, when you go home tonight. You've got two poems to learn tonight, and that's one of them. Oh, yeah, uh, listen, wait till you see what's coming. You're going to have pages and pages of poems to learn. <laughs> OK, let's go on to our next one, which, again, Jeanette, is one that I think you'll introduce for us. Yes, and um, Sue's going to read this in a moment, and it's... It's a perfect poem, really, to stop beating yourself up in the crazy West, where we always think we have to be doing something in order to improve ourselves. You know, whatever it is, the latest self-help book, read it and life will change. Well, it won't. And this poem is actually... <laughs> well, it won't, will it? Um, I hope nobody in the audience has actually written a self-help book. <laughs> um, this is really about removing obstacles rather than doing anything. It's about being, not doing. So go on, do it. Go on. Be it. I'm going to be it right now. Um, this is attributed to Rumi, the translator's unknown, and it's called Your Task. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Mm. Think about it. Just think about it. Not on it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very brief. Like yeah. short ones, obviously, Jeanette. Well, I like long ones too. That was very enigmatic, that. Yeah, it is, but it's the sort of thing that you can carry with you, like a talisman, isn't it? You know, some people carry around a rabbit's foot, you know, or a lucky penny. Yeah, well, who like... carries around a rabbit's foot? Uh, there's, there's also... A, 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 more, a more simple analysis of it, in a way, which is lots of people come and talk to me about love and how often they find themselves pursuing people who aren't interested in them, but how so often they turn away the people who are. And I think mm. it's something we all recognise, do we not, that uh, at times in life, actually, the right partner, the right person for a relationship might be standing right next to you and you're busy looking at the one walking over the hill. <laughs> That got them going. Yeah. Do you think we should have a shake hands with the person next to you? <laughs> William, the next poem. A couple of months ago, I was asked to do a pharmacy and a talk to open a new office building in London, one of those sort of co-working sites. And I spent the afternoon, about three hours, listening to people's problems. And halfway through, the security guard came in and he said, your 3.30 hasn't turned up. Can I take their place? And I said, of course, come and sit down, what's on your mind? And he said to me, I came out when I was 24, but I'm 32 and I still haven't had a relationship. And I said, that's very sad. What, why do you think that is? He said, I don't know, I'm, I'm loving and I'm kind and I'm upbeat and I'm positive, but I'm Muslim and I'm gay and I can't be both. And I said, you have to listen to this poem. This was written seven hundred years ago 
by one of the greatest Muslim poets of all time. And it's all about how men can love each other as well as women. And I read it to him, and he burst into tears, and I think it was probably the most powerful prescription or pharmacy I've ever been involved in. And I think it's time for you to all hear it. Tom. Tom. It happens all the time in heaven by Hafez, translated by Daniel Ladinsky. It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth, that men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? William, just listening to you tell that story about that poem and the effect it had on someone, it's almost a confessorial role that you're in, isn't it, when you're sitting there? Maybe. I feel as though I'm, I'm a cipher or I'm holding hands between that person and that poem. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful and wonderful feeling to be able to simply just connect people to the right poem for their needs. And that's all you really have to do. And... Um, as I said, I think we live in a world where we want to talk to people, but we're a bit confused because social media gives us the illusion that we're talking to people all the time, and we're not really. And I think that makes us even lonelier. Doing my pharmacy around the country, the most common ailment is loneliness. And this is really exacerbated by this strange avatar world we live in, where people put up, not themselves, on social media. They don't say I'm miserable, I'm lonely, or any of these things. Their lives are filled with friends and likes and so on, and it makes everybody else feel increasingly inadequate. Jeanette. Can I just ask William something? When you do your poetry pharmacies around the country, do you think poetry can work for people who think they're not interested in poetry or poetry's not for them? And somebody might just say, oh, look, there's a tent, I'll have a go. Definitely, because I think the P word gets in the way. I, I'm sure we, most of us feel the same thing, which is, as we grow up, a slight sense that we've been failed by the intermediaries in poetry, the English teachers, the librarians, the booksellers, somewhere around 11, 12 or whatever, a lot of people lose their confidence in being able to read a poem or feeling that poetry is for them. But in the end, poetry is, is just words trying to connect to you in the same way that prayer can be, or liturgy can be, and so forth. So, yes, I think it's accessible to anyone, but what's required, in a way, is a little bit of hand-holding, and most important of all, context. 
isn't there also something else which is sometimes almost a re-reading of a poem? It's the, you know, we want poems to be read slowly because yes. we want them to sink in. Because yes. it's the layers of meaning. And sometimes you don't get them on a first. Oh, definitely you don't. And that's why we say to people, read a poem like a prayer. Don't read it like fiction or journalism. Read it out aloud in your head. Or out aloud if, if you're able to, if you're not on the bus. But read it out aloud in your head and read it five nights running. You know, keep it by your bed, you'll get something completely different from it every time. And as it unlayers, you'll, you'll pick up on all the cadences and the lyricism and the musicality, and it will enrich you. Do you think people have lost the ability to concentrate, to listen? Well, we're, to... Certainly, we're certainly affected by all of this. And in that sense, one of the reasons why poetry really helps in the modern world is on the whole, it's quite concise. So, yes, I do think our concentration spans are dramatically affected. I don't know about you, but I'm often sitting reading a novel and after, you know, half an hour or whatever, I find my hand reaching for that damn device. And then I'm thinking, why am I doing that? I'm reading a book. Nothing's changed. Nothing's happened. I think we have a serious problem on our hands, um, which we're not necessarily very good at engaging with. And I had this lovely moment. I, I got an email from somebody <coughs> from Liverpool, actually, from... Uh, I'd been up doing a pharmacy with the, one of the mental health units in Liverpool. And she was suffering from loneliness, and I'd given her four lines by Hafez, which are, I wish I could show you, when you're lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Four simple lines, and I gave her a printout, and I said, stick it on your mirror, learn it off by heart, and read it every morning to yourself. And she sent me an email and she said, uh, you won't remember me, but you, know, you saw me in Liverpool those months ago. And last night I got home to my flat and it had been burgled. And in that awful way that burglars do, my, everything was everywhere. And the only thing that hadn't moved, she said, were those four lines of poetry sticking on my mirror. Oh. Thank you, she said. It got me through the night. Oh. Mm. That's wonderful. Jeanette. Yes. The next poem. Oh, it's Atlas, isn't it? Mm. I'm going to get Sue to talk about this because I know she loves it, and I do too, because I have an Atlas complex. I'm a Virgo, and so is Sue, so we probably all think that we have to hold up the entire world all of the time. But William has a beautiful introduction to this poem in the book, which I hope you'll get after us, because it really is a, it's a splendid book, where he talks about just the living in the day-to-day -day of love mm. and, and what love needs in order to get through every day, and those acts of kindness, which are often really mundane and prosaic, not glamorous or operatic at all. And this poem is really about that. And I was thinking about it actually when I was taking round some wood to my ex-wife in the snow and thinking you actually never lose the people that you love, even if you're not with them anymore. And you have to do things like take them a bag of wood when it's snowing. It's true. Because so much poetry is written about the first flush of love, isn't it? Yeah. And about passion and sex. And actually, what keeps a relationship upright is the rather steady, mundane tasks of care. So, yesterday, I washed and ironed my girlfriend's onesie and popped it on the pillow. And that's, I hope, an act of love. <laughs> as well as housekeeping. Um, shall I read it? Yes. I do really love this, but I genuinely really love this poem. It's great. Uh, so it's called Atlas, as Jeanette said, and it's by U.A. Fanthorpe. There is a kind of love called maintenance, which stores the WD-40 and knows when to use it, which checks the insurance and doesn't forget the milkman, which remembers to plant bulbs, which answers letters, which knows the way the money goes, 
which deals with dentists and road fund tax and meeting trains and postcards to the lonely, which upholds the permanently rickety, elaborate structures of living, which is Atlas. And maintenance is the sensible side of love, which knows what time and weather are doing to my brickwork, insulates my faulty wiring, laughs at my dry, rotten jokes, remembers my need for gloss and grouting, which keeps my suspect edifice upright in air, as Atlas did the sky. William, what have we got next? We've got a poem called Voice by Anne Sampson, which I discovered in the early 90s, mid-90s. And it's one of my favorites. We all know about relationship. As Sue rightly said, there are so many stages of love, from infatuation to help me to forget you, please, if you can sort of imagine the whole range. And I love this one because this is really about not being too needy. You may love each other, but if, you, if, if your voice is wrong, you can begin to collapse a relationship by missing out on how it really all began. Over to you, Jason. Voice by Anne Sanson. Call, by all means, but just once. Don't use the broken heart again voice. I'm sick to death of life and women and romance voice, but with a little help, I'll try to struggle on voice. Spare me the promise and the curse voice. The answer phony, call me please when you get in, voice. The nobody knows the trouble I've seen, voice. The I'd value your advice, voice. I want the how it was, voice. The call me irresponsible, but aren't I nice, voice. They're such a bastard, but I want them in advance, voice. That we all have weaknesses and mine is being wicked, voice. The life's short and wasting time is the only vice, voice. The stay in touch but out of reach, voice. I want to hear the things it's better not to broach, voice. The things it's wiser not to voice, voice. I suppose as well, William, listening to that, there is a way of communicating something to somebody in a rather lovely way. Yes. Which, in any other conversation, might go a bit wrong. Well, that's certainly true. And I think, of course, there's the other side of it, which, you know, we've all learnt to our cost, that it's not what you say, often in life, in relationships, but how you say it. Obviously, I play a lot of bad guys, <clears throat> and I can say, could you pass the salt, please, darling? And that sounds like, I wish I'd never married you. To <laughs> and it really, it just means, can you pass the salt? But that's why I get cast as bad guys. So, <laughs> we'll work on it later. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear you sound loving, and I don't get put that in the wrong way. <laughs> it's not Dear my diary. sort of gig, Sarah. Yeah. Sort of gig. <laughs> no, but it, it sets it in context. Perhaps we should move on to the next poem. <laughs> and William, I think this one's one for you. Uh, this is called The Price by Stuart Henson. I love this poem. So I discovered this the first year I did National Poetry Day, which was about 20-something years ago. And I got a grant from the Arts Council to help National Poetry Day. And not knowing the full rules, I decided to fly post this 
poem all round Britain, which is not what you're supposed to do with Arts Council funding. Um, but I particularly picked um, spots where buses had to stop, and I had them fly-posted at sort of double-decker level. I live in Labrick Grove, and for those of you who know that part of London, there's this point underneath the Westway and the Underground <laughs> Railway where the bus has to stop, and this poem makes you think. Tom Burke. The Price by Stuart Henson. Sometimes it catches when the fumes rise up among the throbbing lights of cars or as you look away to dodge eye contact with your own reflection in the carriage glass. Or in a waiting room, a face reminds you that the color supplements have lied and some have pleasure and some pay the price. Then all the small securities you built about your house, your desk, your calendar are blown like straws and momentarily as if a scent of ivy or the earth had opened up a childhood door, you pause to take the measure of what might have been against the kind of life you settled for. William, I guess, I guess that is also an antidote to some, what you were saying earlier about what we see on social media. It's that sort of idea, what could have been. What could have been, and what could have been, and what could have been for other people if life is good for you. I think it works in both ways. You know, it can be a, a sort of personal gaze in the mirror, or it can be an act of concern for others. But William, in your book, often there, there are a lot of poems, aren't there, that are about being prepared to risk something. Yes. Rather than sit in your nice cosy corner. Yes. Um, because everybody at some point gets the kind of border of common sense and either they can cross over to the unknown or they can turn back to the, 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 the warm lights and the sofa. And that crossing over, isn't it? Very much so. And, you know, one of the reasons there are so many in the book is that a lot of people come to talk to me about lacking in courage, almost as though they're the lion in The Wizard of Oz. That there's something they really want to do in life, and it might be go to get into a relationship, get out of a relationship, write a book, paint a painting, somehow change in some way. And they need a little something to give them the courage to start, to start. And um, actually, there's a wonderful, tiny little one in the book by Christopher Logue, mm, which, mm. which I give people. It's called Come to the Edge, and it goes, come to the edge, it's too high. Come to the edge. I'm too scared. Come to the edge. And they came, and he pushed, and they flew. <laughs> Jeanette, have you got our next poem? It's Wendy isn't Cope, it? isn't it? It isn't is it, <laughs> This is tea towel poetry at its best. Right, I love <laughs> Wendy Cope. And sometimes we overthink things, don't we? And you need something which is almost a little bit of a ditty, but nevertheless has a great truth in it. You were saying that earlier. Tell them what you told me. I also love Wendy Cope, but this poem manages to be funny and true. And that's rare, because sometimes in order to be funny, you bend truth, you exaggerate, you manipulate reality. But this has a, a, a simple 
genuine thoughts within it, and yet I think it's also deeply silly. Now, shall I read it? Go on. <laughs> Go on, then. Well, it's Wendy Cope, as you said. This is called Two Cures for Love. One, don't see him. Don't phone or write a letter. Two, the easy way. Get to know him better. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, that's the perfect antidote to this idea that it's all quite gloomy, it's when you're sad, it's fine reaching deep parts of you. If, if it is even the tea towel poem, <laughs> and it works. Nothing wrong with tea towel no. poems. I've got loads of them at home on the Arga. <laughs> but also, there's nothing wrong with the occasional there was an old man from Devizes. No. I mean, poetry is... <laughs> It can make you smart. It doesn't have to be po-faced, does it? It doesn't have to evoke some incredible maelstrom of serious feelings. It can mm. also be frivolous and yeah. capricious. Well, sorry to bring it all back to Harry Potter. If you had a magic wand, what, what, do you, uh, <laughs> what would you do to the syllabus to make poetry more engaging for people at school? Because I remember it as a, as a thing that needed to be deconstructed to pass exams, as opposed to things that made me laugh or feel or anything. I'd be much more broad church about what poetry is. You know, rap music has transformed formed modern culture over the last 30 years. It's filled with most incredible poetry, and that's what teenagers and adolescents relate to. But actually, I'd train the trainers. You know, I think the real problem is teachers are completely intimidated by poetry themselves, and therefore they swerve around to avoid really understanding how to teach it. And the key is context, as you know, this is what this evening is all about, and I think that's where I'd get to work in teacher training. I mean, I've got kids who are studying at the moment, you know, one doing GCSEs. It feels to me like the problem with engaging with literature is that you're going to have to come up with a written answer and analysis, and that precludes any kind of original feeling or just saying it makes me laugh, or you know, you're going yeah. to have to find words and quotes and, and support things. So the first second you engage with it, you're beginning to look at it as something mechanical. Mm. Mm. I, do, I, I would put a word in for the teachers, though. I don't think, I don't think it's... It... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of it is a, about the, the sort of squashing of, of the syllabus and the way particularly the arts are beginning to be taught without wishing to get on any high horses. But I think you coined it much earlier on, which is poetry is to be spoken out loud. And I think it can be fun. And I think demystifying, yeah. whether, the, whether you're reading out a rap you've written or whether you're you know, doing something, a sonnet by Shakespeare, they're all of equal validity and they should all be allowed within the scope of a classroom. Isn't there something else, though, William, which even adults would have, which is a fear that I'm not getting it? You know, I'm meant to be seeing layers of meaning and levels of understanding, and actually, I'm just thinking, you know... Yes, yeah, which is why I said earlier on, read it, read it out aloud in your head and read it a number of times in different moods. You know, a really good painting or a really extraordinary piece of music, you don't decode it on the spot. You know, you, you look at it, you listen to it. I mean, when I was young and I saved up for my album, my vinyl album, I'd buy it because there were a couple of songs that I'd heard on Radio 1 and there'd be the hits and there'd be this really tricky song on the back of side two and i think, wow, what's that? But once I played the album over and over and over and over again, that was my song and those two rather cloying songs I'd heard on Radio 1 I never wanted to listen to again. And in that sense, with all art, you need to give it some attention and put some effort in. In a way, if something pleases you superficially, it doesn't necessarily have the layers. I was just going to say, I just remembered uh, years ago I was in a production of, I'm not superstitious, but as there's a lot of people in this room, I'll say the Scottish play in case anybody has an adverse reaction. Um, a part of the theatre's sort of outreach was to 
going to a couple of local schools. And I went into one school with a couple of the other actors to sort of give them a half hour or an hour of, you know, Shakespeare. They were really riotous. I mean, they wouldn't shut up. And I suddenly had this feeling that the only thing that would shut them up was if I just launched into um, Mark Antony's speech from Julius Caesar. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought, <laughs> I've tried everything else. <laughs> and my heart was in my mouth. I have never felt more nervous in front of any audience. And I just did it. And I picked out one of them as Brutus and, you know. <laughs> and they shut up. <laughs> but, you know, I'd spent, we'd spent 10 or 15 minutes, you know, going, can you be quiet, please? Can you be quiet so we can get you to create a tableau about war? <laughs> and it was like, I just, it was a moment of going, what arrogance to think that I needed to get in the way of what we were there to deliver and to just involve them in that way. You can get between these great pieces of writing and Mm. students. You don't have to sometimes. Mm. So what? What happened afterwards? Oh, well, then, you know, then they were quite noisy again, but... (laughs) (laughs) There was a little bit of time. And then they were like, can you do another one? I was like, no. Yeah. We're here to learn. What did you go on? Did you you held forth, stood up? Yeah. He lynched Brutus, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Change the ending. Kid played yeah. Caesar in a rough time. <laughs> on to our next poem, and William, this one's for you. Uh, this is called "The Mistake" by James Fenton. Uh, I like this poem very much. We all make mistakes. We know we make mistakes. We're not always terribly good at taking responsibility for our mistakes or really genuinely engaging with them. And James Fenton has a peculiar ability to tell us in a way how we should deal with our mistakes. So, Helena. The Mistake by James Fenton. With the mistake, your life goes in reverse. Now you can see exactly what you did wrong yesterday and wrong the day before. And each mistake leads back to something worse. And every nuance of your hypocrisy toward yourself and every excuse stands solidly on the perspective lines. And there is perfect visibility. What an enlightenment. The colonnade rolls past on either side. You needn't move. The statues of your errors brush your sleeve. You watch the tail turn back, and you're dismayed. And this dismay at this, at this big mistake is made worse by the sight of all those who knew all along where these mistakes would lead, those frozen friends who watched the crisis break. Why didn't they say? Oh, but they did, indeed. Said with a murmur when the time was wrong, or by a mild refusal to assent, or told you plainly, but you would not heed. Yes, you can hear them now. It hurts. 
It's worse than any sneer from any enemy. Take this dismay. Lay claim to this mistake. Look straight along the lines of this reverse. Jeanette, our next poem, Failing and Flying. Yes, I'm, I'm very grateful to William for this poem because I didn't know it and I'm not sure I would have found it. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about the poetry conversation because we can't find everything by ourselves. You know, the whole point of this is a collective process, isn't it? We share things. It's about communication. And I didn't know it and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And it's really a poem about the way we beat ourselves up when things go wrong particularly in relationships, especially in relationships. You know, when something fails that you've loved and you've lost, and you think, oh, I've just got it all wrong again. You know, I can't commit, I can't get it right, I can't do any of the things you're meant to do to have this long, happy collective together. But in fact, it's wrong, and that's what the poem's about. It's really saying, you did fly. You got to the edge of the cliff and you flew, and you had something, and it was real. And it couldn't last forever. And don't break your heart. Look at the joy that you had and celebrate that. And there'll be people here, I should think, who are having a breakup or have had one. And it's the way we go back and somehow hate ourselves or hate our partner. And then we forget all the glory and we rewrite the narrative. And that's really the bit where you sin against the light, when you rewrite the past into your own discordant present. Because it was glorious when it happened, wasn't it? And so we're going to have this poem. Jason, Go ahead, Jason. Failing and Flying by Jack Gilbert. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake. Everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better but anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her. The stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation. The gentleness in her like antelopes standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming, the sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that. Listen to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence when it was Provence and said it was pretty but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell but just coming to the end of his triumph. We do all feel so often about relationships that when they end, somehow or other, that does mean failure. And it is such a bizarre idea, isn't it? I mean, we all hear this thing that you know, we live so long and all that kind of thing and that relationships don't necessarily last a lifetime, but there is somehow this 
social pressure in a way that says that divorce, all these kinds of things, is somehow a failure. And I think we've slightly got that wrong. Love After Love by Derek Wolcott. I think this poem, rather like The Mistake and The Price, are about that business of coming to terms with ourselves. This business of being able to look oneself in the mirror, as it says in The Price, without, without wanting to turn one's eyes away from one's own gaze. And this is a really important poem to me by Derek Walcott, and Helena is now going to read it to you. Love After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself, arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. You were talking earlier, I just want to explore this with you, William, about the power of poetry, which is when you realize that somebody else is feeling, felt exactly as you feel and has found a way to express it better than you can almost even know yourself. Yes. Is that, for you, the heart of why a poem becomes powerful? Yes, I, I mean, I think the word complicity, I, I'd rather actually a quote by Alan Bennett, which I think okay. I, put in, I put in the book because it summed it up much better than I can sum it up. The best moments in reading are where you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things, which you thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, someone even who is long dead, and it's as if a hand has come out and taken yours. And I suppose when you're acting and you are the sort of prism through which your audience is receiving those words, there's a sort of, I don't know, the challenge for you in that communication. Perhaps more so with poetry. For me, it's more when you sit in an audience. There's something that happens in a big, dark room with hundreds of people that uh, it's never the bit you think that gets the laugh or the gasp. Or, but it's just some bit of human behavior, some, some little bit of truth. And you can feel collectively in a room, people go, oh, yeah, I've, I've thought that, I've done that. And somehow it makes people feel less alone, which is why it's much nicer always to see plays, films, all those things with mm. other people. It's just, there's something about telling a story, the specifics of the architecture of the human mind and heart, that if you witness it, and particularly if you witness it with and around other people, mm. you suddenly feel less alone and less uniquely, you know, terminally unique. But also, when you're on a stage, presumably, when you have the audience respond, it must change the way you then continue 
I mean, does it bring it alive for you? And I mean, it's a sort of sounds trite to say it, but I imagine that you perform differently when you hear the response. I'm not an actor. Well, I've played one part. What are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Just got through that door. (laughs) And somebody assumed I was Sue Pollard and I got away with it. Uh, but I don't know if it's the same for proper actors, but I think it's about a resonance you get in your heart. I'm a sort of quite an emotional person. It's, you feel it. You, you say something that's true, and it immediately resonates inside as a truth. And that's what's connecting you. It's not necessarily audible gasps of an audience. Because I don't know that they gasp a lot, do they? They might do, but it's, it, it's about a profound truth. And in a world where we're supposed to be unique and you know, super successful, actually, it's finding out... The comfort I find is finding out how mundane I am, how all these things we all feel together. (laughs) A different audience every night does make it different every night. And the moment you are in any way in denial of that or forget that is when it starts to feel stale. And that's all you need to do to remind yourself is that there's a completely different set of people out there. Our next poem, William. This is a very old-fashioned poem. Thought Harry Potter, now we can talk Tolkien. You asked earlier on about people coming to talk to one and you feeling that you don't have much to offer. And it's certainly true that a lot of people come and talk to me and their lives are unremittingly difficult. And it's hard to find anything for them that they can take away to hold on to. Often people who've experienced loss of a child or grandchild, or often people who are elderly and feel that the doors have closed to them in so many ways. So, as I said, this is a rather old-fashioned poem, but it has a wonderful mm. impact. And rather like Jeanette talking about tea towel poems or whatever, this is something that I'd always keep by my side to give me hope. Tom. All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter by J.R.R. Tolkien. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Jeanette was talking earlier about a poem that she'd come across because of the book. Where do you get your poems from? Well, because I've been doing this quite a long time, quite a lot of them were with me already in my head, and I just found them on the way. Once Elizabeth Shinkman had persuaded Penguin there should be a book of these, I then realised I needed some more. So I haunted, particularly, this sounds a bit strange, but I haunted second-hand bookshops which were filled with old anthologies of poetry long since out of print. I was inspired by Jeanette, who has a wonderful website where she always puts on a poem whenever she's discovered something that she loves and shares with us. And all kinds of anthologists, the wonderful Neil Astley, the founder of Blood Axe, who did Staying Alive, which many of you probably know, three enormous volumes. There's an amazing woman called Jane Davis who runs an organization called The Reader, which helps people in prisons and old people's homes and all around the country with inspirational literature. So I just knocked and sifted and... By the end, I wanted to read some fiction, is the awful truth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you must have come across an awful lot of dross in that. Yes, well, dross, it's subjective, isn't it? You know, do, you what... see, do you go and see performance poetry? 
I do go and see performance poetry. Every year I, I'm part of a thing called the Forward Prize, which makes an anthology called the Forward Book of Poetry, which comes out every year. And it's a wonderful sort of top of the pops of contemporary poetry, but not cover versions, the real thing. <laughs> and that's a wonderful source for me of inspiration, of finding a voice. You read one poem by a poet in an anthology and you think, gosh, I've never heard of him or her. And then you go in pursuit of more of their work. But in the end, I was really looking for poems that I thought would help. I wasn't really looking at the authors. And I've had a slightly tricky moment the last few weeks because I'm delighted that uh, Penguin in America have decided to publish this book in October. But they, but they wanted lots of American poets added, or some American poets added. And they were saying, you know, find me an Asian American or find me an African American poet or find me this or this or that. And of course, that's the wrong way around. That's needle in a haystack. You know, I'm trying to find the poem that's going to change and help. So, um, yeah. But has it now got to the point where you could, I suppose, like when you go to a GP and they're just tapping into the computer, where you can say, what's your problem? And then you can, you know... Well, y yes and no. I mean, I, it's certainly true that when I'm doing a pharmacy, I think the analogy would be the GP who says, actually, most people suffer from the same problems. You know, they'll have some obscure illnesses coming their way. But my GP is antibiotics, whatever, so I suppose that's probably... Not. So there's an element of that, but... Every once in a while, I'm confounded because someone walks in. I got an email today from someone who said, my father always wanted me to be a boy, and I'm not, and I never will be, and I'm 54 and I'm still suffering. Can you send me a poem for that? And I'm still puzzling. So if anyone has any thoughts, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's a really good poem about being different that I just came across, which is called Bedazzled, I think it is. I think Rido is the same, R-E-D-E-R. Yeah. And that's just made me burst into tears. It was about if you're mocking people who are different, about the boy who wants to wear a dress, about the person who doesn't fit into their own skin, then you should hope to have so much bravery in your heart as they do. Yes. You know, and it's really, Perfect. really good. I Perfect. Can, is okay, it we'll called, did you down. say bedazzled? I is think it by it's, Anna Andrews? No, it's oh. not. I think I, I can... I tell you what, <laughs> we'll if, find if it. I can we'll borrow your it. phone, I'll, <laughs> I'll find it. There you go. I was only using it for yes. the time. But, but actually, I, I put <laughs> in, in, the, in the back of a book a little <laughs> email address, so saying if there are any poems that you recommend to help people, send them my way, and I'm hoping that will save me hours of anthologising. But Jeanette, Jeanette, I was going to ask you where you, where you as well, where, how you find, I mean, particularly putting one up, you know, up so regularly, you know, where do you, do you hunt down new poems? It's always a good idea. You know, a proper bookshop will always have new poetry that's out, and it's a really good way to start. Also, bookshops are communal collective places that we should support um, and the Amazon algorithm is never going to help you here so just have a look and uh, yeah, ask your friends but I think that's the point is we're never going to discover it all but if we decide we're going to discover some of it we're going to find a lot more than if we just sit at home with the Oxford Book of English verse. Okay, well, let's hear now. I think this is a poem that you're going to Oh, read. is it Golden Retrievals? Yeah. Are we there? Yes, yeah. I, I love this poem. I really do. When, in 2007, I had a complete breakdown, and it was 50-50 whether I'd be here, but obviously I am. And when I was recovering, I had no language of my own, and it's the first time language has ever left me. And it was very frightening. And so what I did was, I didn't know William then, but I was really doing what William prescribes, in that the only way that I could stop the crazy voices that were in my head was by reading poetry. And I used to read it out loud in front of the bathroom mirror. And as I read, the strong, sane voice of the poem would be enough to silence the destructive, obsessive voices that were in my head. And I could see the panic 
disappear from my face. If you ever read poetry in front of the mirror, you do see the change in yourself, that, that, so the physiognomy, the, the physicality of poetry. Look, these guys know it better than me. The whole thing about having these lines, somehow, it's in your being, isn't it? It's not from the neck up. It's everything. It's gut, spleen, heart, liver, sinew, tissue, muscle, blood. And you get that when you do it. And it was... You know, sometimes I was living in a haunted house and I'd never know when the thing would strike me and knock me down. Um, sometimes I was just clinging on to the edge of the boat. But poetry was that boat, and that's why I trust it. And lying in bed recovering, I was reading a memoir by Mark Doty called Dog Ears, which is about living with dogs, living with loss. But nothing is ever just about living with dogs, is it? How many people here have got a dog? Not enough. <laughs> well, the Blue Cross is going to be busy after this. So this is Golden Retrievals by Mark Doty. Fetch. Balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Mock, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you, either you're sunk in the past, half of our walk, thinking of what you never can bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? My work to unsnare time's warp and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you. This shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely now. Bow wow, bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> He's getting a dog now. <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. brilliant poem. Do you remember that moment? You remember the moment when you were reading that in the mirror? Mm. Yes. And also, the great thing about poetry, obviously, it's serious, it's profound, it's deep, but also it can just make you laugh, yeah. can't it? And it yeah. can cheer you up. And sometimes doing animal impersonations is a good idea. <laughs> Have you found it? Oh, go on, have a think about your questions while Sue tells us. Go on, what's the poem? It's not quite right for your situation, but I just really love it. So it's bedecked, it was not, not bedazzled, I'm a doofus. It's by <laughs> Victoria Riedel, or Radel, R-E-D-E-L. Tell me it's wrong, the scarlet nails my son sports, or the toy store rings he clusters four jewels to each finger. He is bedecked. I see the other mothers looking at the star choker, the rhinestone strand he fastens over a sock. Sometimes I help him find sparkle clip-ons when he says sticker earrings look too fake. Tell me I should teach him it's wrong to love the glitter, that a boy's only a boy who'd love a truck with a remote that revs, battery slamming into corners or hot wheels looped and looping off tracks into the tub. Then tell me it's fine, really, maybe even a good thing. A boy who's got some girl to him and I'm right for the days he wears a pink shirt on the seesaw in the park. 
Tell me what you need to tell me, but keep far away from my son, who still loves a beautiful thing, not for what it means, this way or that, but for the way facets set off prisms and prisms spin up everywhere, and from his own jeweled body he's cast rainbows, made every shining true color. Now try to tell me, man or woman, your heart was ever once that brave. Who says poetry isn't powerful? Now then, some questions. Number one first, please. We were talking uh, just before the show started about Russian poetry, and my friend said that most Russian poetry rhymes, and she said lots of English poetry doesn't rhyme. I said, yeah, that's right. So she said, well, what is a poem? And I didn't know how to answer, so I wondered if you have an answer. What is a poem? It's the most perfect question. Thank you. It's where we should have started the evening. Who's going to... Can you answer? Well, I think the most important thing is to be really broad church about this. I think one of the intimidating factors about poetry is an extraordinary sort of snobbery and an extraordinary sense that somehow or other I don't know what's good. And that's quite problematic, and I think that puts people off poetry. Poetry doesn't need to rhyme. Often children like rhyming poetry to get them started. Shakespearean blank verse, let's face it, you know, that's pretty much the peak for a lot of people and there aren't necessarily obvious rhymes in that. So to me a poem is what you, you choose is a poem and I'll give you a good example, I've put in this book a wonderful piece of poetry, I think, which is what people sing at Anfield on a Saturday afternoon, which are the words from a musical, Carousel, and it goes, you'll never walk alone, you remember that? And I think that's a wonderful piece of poetry. Walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Jeanette, how do you answer the question? Uh, I do like it to have a bit of meter and scansion, I must say. But what work are the words doing? Are they carrying their own weight? Are they, are they carrying the weight of the lion? Is there something muscular and held about it? Because it's language at its most concentrated, isn't it? It's the place where the thing is distilled into the tightest possible place um, so that you can trust it not to break under you when you put your own weight on it. So the thing is always stronger than it looks. For me, that's important. But it is this concentration of language, absolutely. I don't, it, I don't think it has to be the best words in the best order, but I think it does have to be words that have a kind of exactness for the emotion, because it, it's usually a snapshot of an emotional moment, isn't it? So how do we get that concentration, that distillation, so that we can hold on to it, so that it feels homeopathic, that a, a tiny dose of poetry will somehow write the whole, or, or even chiropractic, I guess. You know, you just press on the thing and the whole thing will then go back into place. Something like that, isn't it? <laughs> Mm. Is that something? <laughs> Very good. Very good. They know because they do it all the time. I remember you talking about art and saying everything in life is so fractured that actually when you suddenly are able to just look at a picture, you are experiencing something that is whole, that is complete, yeah. and that that's a rare thing, that it's almost like oxygen. And then in a sense there's that quality to a poem. It exists within its own bubble it's it's its own thing it's you can you can absorb it in one go Sue you know, what do I think is a, a, a makes yeah. a poem yeah 
I'm like you, I do like a bit of scansion. I don't, I don't need a dum-de-dum-de-dum. I don't need to count yeah. how many feet it's got and, you know, marvel at the sort of, you know, we, I, I think that's what kills a poem sometimes. And I sort of studied literature and it smacked it out of me a bit. But it contains a, a beautiful truth within it. It contains a sentiment that rings true for you emotionally, that you can take with you, that, as we've said before, expresses a common conceit elegantly and beautifully and moves your feelings, not only connects your feelings to the world around you, but elevates your thinking alongside your fellow man or woman. I wouldn't even attempt to try and define what one was, but I know what it does. A great poem does a, a kind of a focal shift. It's like a magic eye picture. When you stare at a magic eye picture and suddenly you see life or yourself, it shines a light inwards. Mm. So I don't care what the structure or form of it is, but it suddenly, it does slap you, but slaps you in the right way. It refocuses you on a truth that you, you hadn't seen or understood about yourself. But it expresses what we can't. It expresses That's what we can't. Mm. Yeah. Beautifully summed up there. Uh, microphone number two. Hi. For those of us who attempt to write poems, do you think it's about rhyme again? Do you think that you can't use rhyme anymore, that rhyme is regarded as glib nowadays and you can't say anything serious? Ooh. You know, it's not just about one rhyme. There are all kinds of inner rhymes within a complex line of poetry. I'm looking at poetry of rap at the moment. And if you just simply just rhyme after rhyme after rhyme after rhyme, it deadens things. But it's this, these complex inner rhythms within sentences or within, within lines of poetry that transform. Okay. Question, uh, microphone number three. I have a question for William. I've just bought a copy of your book, The Poetry Pharmacy, and I was just wondering if there are any poems in there for survivors who've posted Me Too in various social media sites. No, but that's a good point. <laughs> and perhaps before I finally finish the next that's one. Phenomenal woman. Oh, we've got Phenomenal Woman, silly me. Yes, why don't you read us Phenomenal Woman? Phenomenal Woman. This is by the great Maya Angelou. Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size. But when I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. I say it's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips the stride of my steps, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. I walk into a room, just as cool as you please, and to a man, the fellows stand, or fall down on their knees. And then they swarm around me, a hive of honeybees. I say, it's the fire in my eyes, and the flash of my teeth. <laughs> and the swing in my waist, and the joy in my feet. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Men themselves have wondered what they see in me. They try so much, but they can't touch my inner mystery. When I try to show them, they say they still can't see. I say it's in the arch of my back the sun of my smile, the ride of my breasts, the grace of my style. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Now you understand just why my head's not bowed. I don't shout or jump about or have to talk real loud. 
When you see me passing, it ought to make you proud. I say, it's in the click of my heels, the bend of my hair, the palm of my hand, and the need for my care. Because I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Another question. I just wanted to ask an editorial question to William. When you were putting together this anthology, did you feel like you had to sort of stop yourself from going any further? Because it is a really beautifully slim volume. Just wondering if you put a, a self-limit on it or if it was just naturally this size. Thank you. No, I think I'm quite lazy at heart. <laughs> and something about the slim nature of it uh, perhaps poetry often is slim um, in terms of the size of the books that you come across. No, I think probably sloth is, is the only excuse. <laughs> you didn't wrestle for hours getting, thinking, no, this one or this one. I, well, I did, but of course, quite a lot of poems cover similar things. And so then it was a question of trying to narrow it down which is the best. You're saving yourself for the sequel. Well, I, I'm glad you, <laughs> you said, I couldn't possibly say that. But also, it's good because you can take it in your pocket, in your handbag, it's light, and it's the kind of thing you want to carry around with. You don't want some three-volume novel, yeah. do you? No. Over here. Can the panel recommend a poem that will help us cope with Brexit? <laughs> oh. Okay. okay. Actually, can I come back to that question? I, I'm put, don't worry, don't worry, I'm just hitting pause for the moment. Let's have another question before we come back to that. Microphone three. So thank you very much for everything that you've read and said. Poetry is indeed transformational. And as a teacher who loves texts and shares them with their students, I wonder particularly if those of you who've performed might say something about how you can free students through the way you deliver poetry, particularly thinking maybe about the classroom. Well, Tom, your experience, I suppose, with, you know... I mean, it was shouting it at them, was it? It was just putting no, yourself no, in there. I don't mean I, shouting, I mean, you know, it was a, doing the full tour de force. It was trusting the material, actually. And I remember regretting that we hadn't just... I thought, there's a version where you just don't... It like, you know, like, you go into a French class and you're not allowed to speak English. There's a version of, you know, trying to get kids involved with Shakespeare where you just only talk to them in iambic pentameter or, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, there's, that exists. But I, the thing I thought of when you asked the question was, uh, I know Sis Berry, the godmother of voice at the RSC, said, let the words do something to you, don't do something to the words. Wouldn't it be amazing in every classroom to have all these, there's these poems, these resources, filed away under different emotions, so if kids felt lonely or lost or bullied or different and isolated, they could just rifle through and start in their spare time to investigate them. And I think for some kids it's having the permission to read and to experience things and have their own agency in a, in a system that's sometimes quite driven and singular. I mean, mm. I'd go back to context any time if I was involved in teaching poetry at school. It's giving people the context first and then the poem and that brings it alive to them. 
Uh, when I was at drama school, we did uh, similarly. We took a Shakespeare workshop around various different places, and we'd freeze the scene and let them ask us any questions. And we went to a huge, wide, eclectic mix of uh, educational establishments, from local community, adult community colleges to very posh private schools. And it was very striking how, in the schools where they were likely to and aspiring to get O levels and A levels, they were asking us questions to make sure they were on the right track to get the to get the right answer. And in other places, when we took bits of Hamlet into a school where they'd never seen it before, they were talking about that their mum had remarried and for the, to get the council flat or whatever, you know. And I remember doing the scene where Polonius was behind the arras and gets stabbed. And we stopped and we said, does he know he's behind the arras or not? And in Rodine, they all had the answer because they knew then they were all going to get A's at A-level. In the other place, they weren't sure. They wanted to know if it could be done both ways. And we played the scene both ways and it brought it to life for them. So just extrapolating from that, the, the thing about poetry or any literature, if you take away, if you can, with the syllabus that you're, you're struggling under, if you take away the notion that there is an answer to anything or a right answer, if you can just let them enjoy it and thrive and play with it and ask each other questions and write their own uh, and just remove it from the exam or testing syllabus at all. I think that's the, the key, what she said was the fun bit. So not um, what I said then? No. Because <laughs> we're related, remember? No, it's kind of exactly what you just said. Okay. I was just extrapolating. But we can make it fun. I think mm. as adults, we forget how to play. Mm. And we don't do enough playing in our daily life. And, and with the kids, we, we've got to make the serious fun and the fun serious. We've just got to swap it up. And musicality, there's an innate sense of rhythm and things that help us in this in poetry that, as we said, it does something to us. So we have to shout it, we can do crazy games with poetry, like say alternate words, make it fun. You've got to get out of your head. You've got to get the kids out of their heads. Stop thinking that there is a prescribed answer or we've got to, as you say, we've got to get, we've got to be judged how clever we are. Mm. Forget it. This is a piece to be somehow owned and enjoyed and, and you can discover it by playing. Yes, absolutely right. So, but very cheesily to pull it back to Harry Potter, what, what the books... No, no yeah, just well, do well, it. What Joe's books did is they ignited a love in literature in children all over the world that started them. My kid read them all uh, because she wanted to come to a screening and hasn't stopped reading since. And the same thing is true. If you get poems, if you're allowed to teach uh, and use poetry and performance poetry that, that are either silly or fun or engaging, it's a gateway drug to the maybe more challenging poetry. And so it's, a, it's about making it just completely engaging. I was going to say, I think Yeats talked about poetry coming from irrational intelligence, not rational intelligence. So wouldn't it be great if we could invite young people to bring a bit of irrationality into a classroom instead of everything being so kind of, you know... Linear. Linear, yeah. yeah. yeah and also great. to write poems as well. I think yeah. just in order to appreciate poems, sometimes it's great to have written your own and to say to a class, you know, your, your assignment is to just go and play, as you say, and have fun and, you know, pick any topic you like and then you can read them out. And by writing your own poem, you then feel, you know, you're not too separate from those who've written it who've gone before you. It's not a distant craft. It's one that you also can own. It's a thing you do in rehearsals sometimes when we do <laughs> no, no, for a play where you paraphrase. 
Because sometimes yeah. you, you're having trouble with the text, you're having trouble connecting with it. And uh, one of the most interesting directors I worked with took the scripts off us after the first day of read-through and, and made us paraphrase the whole thing. So we owned it and then brought the text back in, which is fun also. And another one that we do, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, is with a tennis ball. And just chuck a tennis ball. It's so great because it just gets rid of a lot of aggression. Like the dog. But to the next person <laughs> who says the you, next do line. Do you chuck it at them? We should have done yeah. it with yeah. this. I did. Yeah. And then, you know, just fun things like that. Was there a poem for Brexit? Well, for our last poem, I thought I'd read you a prescription first and then Tom will read the poem. And I've tried to construct this book a bit like a Victorian herbalist so that you can look in the index for your condition and that will refer you back to prescription and poem or prescriptions and poems for that condition. So this prescription is for fear of the other, also suitable for lack of empathy individualism, isolation, Brexit. <laughs> Although it started life in a work of prose, John Donne's famous No Man is an Island passage has long been distributed and shared as verse. It certainly seems to me to have an enormous poetic value and power. It is also bursting with relevance for modern life, despite being almost 400 years old. As the Western world struggles to deal with a volume of refugees unprecedented since the Second World War, it seems that our supplies of empathy and human fellow feeling are increasingly falling short of demand. It's very easy, especially when we feel threatened or frightened, to allow people of other races, religions or national origins to fall into the vague category of the other. These others are terrifying their unfamiliarity and their seeming lack of loyalty to our values can make us feel that they're less deserving of our finer instincts. Sometimes, even, we can feel that they are less deserving of that title human. Yet we know, and history has shown us on many occasions, that only terrible things can come from this instinct. We all have more in common than what divides us. The fundamental values and needs of humanity are universal. The lazy or vicious thinking that would leave some of us out in the cold, that would undervalue their very lives based on some arbitrary question of colour or faith, is one of our species' most crude and destructive traits. In our more reasoned moments, none of us could disagree with Dunn's premise. Although he speaks only of Europe, the wider application is clear. Whatever sunders us from other people, whether it is death or our cruelty and callousness, diminishes the fabric of humanity itself. We would do well to allow Don's words to remind us of that. No Man is an Island by John Donne. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. 
any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Hannah Kay. Editing was by executive producer Rowan Slaney and Daisy Moll. And I'm your host, Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.